Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to today's episode of the John Papaloni Show. Today we have Tom Pobayeski on the show. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today. Absolute pleasure. I am super stoked, super excited for the show. I mean, we've talked about it before, and uh, you're in real estate, and you take it in a different perspective than uh, a lot of people do, and uh, that's why I'm excited to get into it. So why don't we start off with a little story about who you are, how you got here, and what you do. Yeah, so again, it's uh, Tom Polievsky, and I've been in real estate sales for about 12, almost going on 13 years now. Uh, previous to that, actually, I was a chart accountant, so I used to work on Bay Street and one of the big four firms, and quite truthfully, I didn't really like it. Corporate life wasn't really for me, and sure enough, actually, I'm a second-generation realtor, so my father kind of introduced me to investing in real estate, and I'd say one thing led to another. I actually got involved in flipping homes as a side hustle. With that experience, I eventually became a full-time realtor, got into sales, and since then I've transacted in over 1,400 transactions in that time frame. Uh, I run a sales team uh, that's focused on investing as well within the greater Toronto area. Uh, and as well, I, I also do uh, long-term long -term, uh, investing as well in real estate with uh, single-family duplexes and uh, triplexes and some of smaller multifamily properties. That's very interesting, right? And, you know, I love how you said that, right? Because like you started off with a family business and you knew right away that uh, something wasn't for you. So you made the adjustment where a lot of times people just hang out and continue to do what they don't like to do. And then until they're stuck or something happens to them. And usually the entrepreneurial spirit comes with, uh, I got laid off from my job and I decided I wasn't going to do it again, but uh, you know, you took initiative, which is kind of why you're really successful in the business you're in now because initiative carries forward like yeah. that. And uh, yeah, uh, and you obviously catered to investment stuff. Like, how'd you get into the investment part? Like I mentioned earlier, right? Like, my first experience in real estate was in investing. You know, I was fortunate to have a great mentor, my father, kind of showing me the ropes. And I really just liked uh, my first experience actually flipping. Like I said, I would buy a property renovate and then and then sell make a few bucks i just like there was an entrepreneurial side to that which i really appreciated versus the corporate life again was wasn't really for me right like i said to myself i'm gonna spend 20 30 years of my life in a in a job i better like it so again i was doing that on, on the side with that real estate experience I eventually just got into the sales part of it because i just liked the investing side and again started to go to um different sort of seminars i went to meetup groups i went to different forums to learn more about investing because then I bought a rental property and I had a lot of these aha moments. I was like, wow, this one property, I'll give you an example. I bought this place in Oshawa for 130000 back in like 2009, kept it, refinanced it. And then sure enough, that grew into 600, 800,000 today. And again, those aha moments I had, I was like, okay, if I do this multiple times and you know, now I'm onto something. And if I can help people do that, that's even much better. So that's that's kind of where this all kind of evolved from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, you do your own seminars now as well, right? Still do it, yeah. We do it on different topics like investing. We do it on even pre-construction. Uh, talk about also, like again, flipping. Uh, that seems to be kind of our go-to sort of niche, I'd say. Well, how long does the flipping take, right? Because I mean, a lot of times people think that they're gonna buy a home. They're gonna uh, put some can of paint in it. And then like two months later, they've uh, rotated the house and made their profit. Now we all know that's a load of uh, BS, right? So what's the real process? The real process, that's a, you know, that's a great question, right? It's about finding the right buy, right? You gotta buy a property that uh, is at a good price at a discount. And that way you can improve on it and make some money, like theoretically. So really you're looking for something that's undervalued, 
that you know you can put some value into it, whether it's a coat of paint, but I find like it's the worse it is, the better the opportunity. Because the bigger the problems, the more it scares away people, the more that you can capitalize on it, right? Um, but usually we'll do like the whole nine yards. We'll do like kitchens, bathrooms. Um, we'll do flooring and so forth. Sometimes we'll get into like larger sort of additions and structural items, but we try to keep it simple. And then within about a three to four month process from the time we close on the purchase, the time that we sell it and then close on the sale, it's about a four month process actually. Have you ever had an experience where uh, it wasn't so positive and how did you deal with it? Actually, you know what? Uh, so the thing about real estate is that it's a cyclical business. Just so for your viewers or your listeners have some context, right now we're talking about May of 2023. And then during the 2022, we had a transition in the market where things went up and things went down. So I had a property in Hamilton, for example, that I purchased uh, about, what was it, 540000 um, Let's put it this way. To break even on that home was about six sixty. So... Again, 120,000 difference. The market corrected 20%, so it was worth maybe no more than 550 at the end of the day. So if I was to sell that, yeah, you're looking at a substantial loss. But I decided to, you know what? We're just going to rent this out. We're going to wait till the market corrects, and then we'll go, we'll we'll sell it at that point in time. Because I don't know if you remember, John, like 2017, yes. right? We also had a similar situation where the prices went up, then the fair housing plan kicked in by the government, and then the, the market went down. And we found that it took about like three years, roughly that market to kind of go back to where it was. Interesting enough, right now, I'm seeing like it changing much more rapidly, surprisingly, even though we've had like eight interest rate hikes. We've had um, recent run-ups since March 1st. Like it's been quite interesting. Yeah, like, and I believe that uh, what we have now like we had an inventory problem in 2017-18. We did. But I think it's a bigger problem today than it was then. And I think that is the reason why it's a faster rebound. Yeah, I would say so. It's like it's definitely cushioned it. Like if, if, if you were to look at it, we've had eight interest rate hikes. And every time they would increase it, the prices went down. And then by the fifth or the sixth increase, it kind of flattened out. And the reason was why. And it's to your point, it's like, oh, we don't have enough homes to sell. So it's cushioning the blow of that, that impact on, those, on that interest rates. So, and, and to your point, right, we have got more immigration than we've had before. We just can't manufacture or produce enough homes for these people. So you're going to see a supply shortage in the coming years. Which is going to bring up another point with uh, a little politics here, but not about politics. It's about <laughs> real estate. Uh, Ford has uh, made it so now we can uh, change single family homes into uh, multi-residential. Yep. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, they're doing the same thing in, in uh, Hamilton, for example. Actually, they're able to basically by right, like for example, in Hamilton, you can do um, not, only, not only like a secondary suite, you can do three up to four units in certain cases and then you have in toronto they're doing the garden suite so now you can put a main floor then a basement suite and then now you can do a garden suite again so they're trying to increase density and i guess that you said that was in florida right no no, uh, no. i said that in toronto so oh and Doug so it's Ford, wrong uh, brought that in florida's doing it too okay yeah yeah, yeah. he made it he brought that in that's part of his housing plan yeah so they're looking at the private sector to kind of make up for the difference now i think it's gonna be a little difficult for us to make up for the difference but uh, again, they're trying to find density at the end of the day. They're trying to find places for people to live. Um, there's not enough. I, I agree with you on that part. That's a major thing. I don't know what the solution is to get this uh, solved, right? Because, I mean, if you keep letting people in faster than you can build, I don't know what the solution is. So, obviously, where are prices going to go? Only one way. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that it's also supply and demand, as you pointed out. And then you've got like also just the fact that like currency, right? The devaluation of currency happening, right? This inflation, which is like you got the same home. The home hasn't changed, but your currency's devalued. So hence it props up the price of the asset, right? So depends on how you look at it. But going back to what you said, it really comes down to fundamentals of supply and demand. I don't know how they're going to correct that. One way is through bureaucracy, uh, as in like limiting red tape for developers to come in and develop properties because it just the turnaround just takes too long. Which brings up the other point going back to your investments. Yeah. Right. Like we know out there that there's a limited amount of money a person can borrow based on income and stuff. We have the stress test and stuff. Now, I think the banks typically cut you off. I think is it four or five rental properties before they cut you off, basically. Yeah. So um, and just kind of knowing where you're coming from, how do you get around that? Like, how do you deal with that? Oh, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah. I wish I had known what I'd known, let's say, when I started investing, right? Because I think most people, when they're buying property, they put them in their own names without thinking about it too much. Like, what are the implications of it? So there's a couple of little tips that you can do, right? One is, if you're buying with a spouse or significant other, try to buy under your own individual names. So, for example, John, if you and your spouse, you know, you can buy five, your spouse can buy five, provided you guys can qualify under those those limits. But uh, otherwise, if you both put your names on, you're actually both being, you're both, your credit pool is being impacted, right? 100% each, not 50%, 100%. So it's a little tip is like separate where you can the individual if you're kind of pairing with somebody. There is actually even a way to go about in terms of uh, the order of banks that you work with. Right. So for example, um, RBC will allow you like five, five mortgages, right? Uh, Scotia Bank will allow you up to, will give you five, but no more than 10. So what I'm trying to say is don't go to Scotia first, go to RBC first, fill up your five properties and then go buy another five with Scotia. Again, you'll have to qualify. Does gotcha. That, does that make sense? Yeah. So just to clarify, so basically I get it. Now, if you like, correct me if I'm wrong, if you go to Scotia and you got your five, then you go to RBC and you're declined. But if you go to RBC, get five and go to Scotia. Scotia will, themselves will only give you five mortgages. Correct. But they will uh, factor in the other ones and allow you up till 10 as a result. Correct. Gotcha. That is, I just learned something there. Yep. I did not know that part. Yeah, they right? can do wow. that. Wow, that, that, that is fascinating. I mean, glad we had that conversation. The other way to bypass this is that because you're obviously uh, into multi-residential as well. Mm -hmm. Why not go above a five-plex or get into something bigger like that right. where it's based on the uh, product and not as much on your income? So I'll also share maybe something that maybe your, your viewers are, are not aware as well, that certain banks will allow you to put them into holding companies which without impacting your personal credits, okay? So I'll give you another example is RBC will allow you to put them into a holding company. You can put five in there and it doesn't show up on your credit. At least I haven't seen it put on my credit necessarily. That may change. Who knows? But, but my point is like all of a sudden now it's like, oh, when someone pulls your credit, you don't see five properties, five mortgages anymore. So that's one way to, to think about it as well. Um, I know that, that if you go to National Bank, National Bank will put it on your credit because you have to personally guarantee it. Gotcha. So that's one thing to kind of take note of is there's this kind of maneuvering of financing. Going back to what you were saying about why not just go to multifamily? Definitely can do that. In fact, they, they, they want you to put under a corporation. The only thing that's a bit of a challenge nowadays is how much will you get? Because you're limited in terms of what the, how the building performs, right? Right. 
And what I've seen is the cap rates on a lot of these multifamilies has not really gone down, uh, sorry, uh, up, up per se. They've stayed about the same. Meanwhile, you're borrowing at six, 7%. So if you do the math, I've seen that they will go up to like 50% LTV, 50% loan to value. So you got to put a substantial down. So yes, you can go and get commercial financing. Just keep in mind that it's probably going to require a substantial down payment. And that's why most people eventually, once they cap out on the residential world, they go into like the commercial world is because like, okay, there's no limit to the financing, but your limit is really, well, how does the asset perform? Right. Right. So that's, that's, I guess that's the way to kind of work it. And at the same time, if you improve the asset, let's say you improve the finances of that in within five years, you can go refinance and pull that money out as well. Which makes sense. So that, that's a great point there. You're right. So a lot of people do maximize the residential, then cross over. So that is a popular thing. Um, in terms of your properties, like, do you have a set criteria of how you choose where to invest and what to invest in? Or is it sort of just things pop up and you choose whatever popped up? <laughs> well, it started off like that, I guess, it just popped up, I guess. Um, <laughs> my first property was in Oshawa and I just went on cash flow. I just said, hey, does it pay for itself? And the answer was yes. Uh, then once those numbers started not to work, I went to like Bowmanville. Uh, I've purchased in Barrie. I've purchased in uh, Mississauga uh, and even Kitchener, Cambridge. What I look for is like areas with population that's growing. Obviously, the numbers need to make sense. But what I'll find is like you want to make sure that there is like jobs in the area, right? Because that's where, why people will live in an area. And that's where the influx of migration will come into. Like people are going to kitchen right now like crazy. That's why the rents are up double digits. So that's going to help with your, uh, with your investing. Um, try to stay away from smaller towns. Nothing wrong with smaller towns, but I think you'll have limited growth. Your cap rates will be much better. But there's always, I found, like an inverse relationship between income and, and appreciation. And right. you try to get a balance of both. And you, and you can, uh, even, even with these interest rates where they are today. Yeah, I kind of agree with you on the small town part too. Like, I mean, it may be easier to get better cap rates, but again, it's affected on appreciation. And like prime example, if you go to a small town, you can find a place for 700000 But if it goes up 10%, that's 70000 mm-hmm. Where 10% in Toronto is 150000 Yeah, It's the same 10%. It's not like the small town goes up less because it's a small town. The rate is roughly the same. Now, some might go up 8%, and another one goes 9 and one goes 6 But roughly, they're pretty consistent, yeah. I would say. But the rents aren't consistent. Like a one-bedroom downtown Toronto... And that's like a closet, for lack of better description, is like twenty five hundred dollars. But you can find that same one bedroom out in Niagara, we'll say, for two thousand dollars. There's a five hundred dollar difference there. So even the rents are showing the difference between small town and big town. So that's just been my observation, and maybe people have seen different things. I don't know, but that's been my observation. Now, even going to what you're saying, you like you focus on jobs, which I like that. What about? Uh, student rentals because obviously that student rental part it creates a need yes well the demand for student rentals is there uh, for sure i mean we've seen um i mean there's a lot of work uh the student visas coming in and there's a shortage of them they're great at cash flow 
my experience with student rentals personally is that um, they are more maintenance involved. So you got to ask yourself, like, what kind of investor do you want to be? Uh, do you like something that's more passive or do you mind something that's more active? And really, I found with the student rentals is that there's more damage involved um, because of parties and just students just my experience was they don't take care of it as, as a family would at the end of the day. So that's the thing you got to look out for is your utilities are way higher. Your insurance is higher. The other implication is if you're looking to refinance that property in the future, you may face some roadblocks from from banks. They don't like financing student properties or refinancing them, generally speaking. So if that's something that a tool you want to use in the future to finance future properties, you should be aware of that. That makes total sense. And obviously, because student rentals are inconsistent because they're gone at the end of the year. So you're constantly looking for a new lease where if you have a family, they may be there two, three years. Yeah, I haven't had that. The problem, I haven't found that problem, like filling them is not an issue. Getting payment, not an issue. It's more the maintenance part. Of course. Is, is a lot more than average is what I find. Right. Well, here's another myth that I find. And I know the answer because I'm in the industry, but I'm going to ask you about it, which is a lot of people look at rentals as passive income. As a landlord, I'm sure you're going to have an answer for that one. <laughs> yeah, definitely not passive, I would say. I mean, th- there is a degree of how passive a, a certain um, investment will be. For example, I would go with the least passive rental property is going to be a, a newly built pre-construction condo that you're renting out. Very, I wouldn't say it's passive, but it's not that much involved, I would say, you know, aside from collecting rent and doing a few maintenance. And in fact, you can probably even get a property manager to take care of it. And then you go like single family, then duplexes, then triplexes. The moment you start adding people into the same building that's when it gets less passive right because they'll reach out to you more often and more things happen just more things happen well more wear and tear four people in a building there's gonna be four people's worth of uh wear and tear in there the one thing i will say too is like if you get to a certain point i've kind of learned this along the way is like there i know some of the bigger investors you know they focus on scale so they want let's say 30 40 units why because now they can get they can pay for someone to take care of it on their behalf having said that you still got to manage your managers. Yeah. Right. Even if you get a property manager, you got to manage them, make sure they're on the ball and so forth. Right. There's always an element of management. Which brings up another question in terms of the whole financing part of it. Right. Like, I mean, it's easy to say to get a property manager. Right. And even just say you get the best property manager on the planet where you never hear from them. The money just shows up and goes, poof, it's just right in front of your face. Right. Like, even if you're lucky enough to get that, which we know nobody is, um, what ends up happening is there's a cost associated to that. So how do you factor the costs into that? Like, at what point in time? Does a property manager make sense and where does it not make sense? Well, I think it's just a matter of how much you value your time, right? Like if you're paying someone $20 an hour and you're able to earn $100 an hour, then I think it's a no-brainer to get someone to do $20 tasks. That's the way I justify it. Um, I do have a property manager and I have someone in-house that does it as well. So I have a third-party person that takes care of more of the complicated properties and I have someone in-house that uh, actually she just started with us and I'm training her on, on, on managing the property. But I would say that's what it comes down to is like, do you want to be doing $20 tasks or you want to be doing $100 tasks? Makes sense. Makes sense to a point, right? At the same time, a lot of the concerns are going to be that there's limited income, Mm -hmm. right? And what happens is even today's interest rates, cash flow is going to be a very uh, problematic factor, right? Because once upon a time, we'll even say as much as two years ago, you can find properties that cash flowed and you had excess. And I'm not saying like an abundance as in you have billions of dollars, but you had enough where that if you lost a little, 
you could kind of compensate. Where today, with renewing mortgages, they're starting to be in a negative cash flow without the property manager. Now, there's going to be some uh, fears of affordability and whether or not they can make their payments. So in that situation, what would you recommend? I'll tell you what I've done is I've honestly just hired people to do it. Um, I've had some properties in the last, I purchased in the last year and a half that took variable mortgages and they're negative right now. Keeping in mind that one is they're in fantastic locations. I've never really got rich off the cash flow. I've got rich off the appreciation. So I'm hanging on for long term and I'm fortunate to be in a position where I can do that. At the same time, it's again, it's a, I think you got to look at it from where can your time be best spent? Is it managing the property or is it perhaps acquiring more or whatever, whatever your business is? Again, it depends who you are, right? Right. So I get where that argument can come from. But again, I go back to, hey, $20 tasks or $100 tasks because you can do that trade off right? and you're netting $80 potentially, right? So you could be making net more doing something else by paying someone to do something different. And especially, here's the thing, do you like doing it? That's probably a more important question is like, do you like managing properties? Do you like doing the, the, all the, you know, the repairs or whatever the case is? I personally think some cases I don't mind it, but I prefer not to. Uh, and hence, I think like that's the way I look at it is like, where can my time be better spent? Yeah, I think most people prefer not to if they <laughs> have the option, right? Like, I mean, nobody likes that call at three in the morning saying, yeah, I got a leak. I'm like, yeah, turn the water off. can you come over here and it's like ah (laughs) right so it happens to everybody in there and that's part of the business i guess but um why don't we break down the finances in general like when you what i mean by break down the finance like you have to purchase the property let's just say we get a duplex that's uh roughly around 850 bucks a month a thousand i mean uh purchase eight hundred fifty thousand, mm-hmm. and then um what will the average rent in that place that we'll say the i think the average rent there in that circumstance probably would be about twenty one hundred dollars per unit my guess might be a little bit more. you know what that sounds like a kitchener property like a duplex yeah, bungalow yeah. um you can probably get twenty five hundred plus utilities for the main floor basement eighteen hundred plus utility a share of utilities for the basement Um, so, so what I mean is with that $4,300, how would that payment break down? Because I mean, obviously again, not everything is going to cash flow, Mm. but there's gotta be, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's gotta be some amount of money that's going to be budgeted for repairs and maintenance. Like you're not going to sit around, wait and find out, Hey, you need a new roof. And you're going, I don't have that. Um, so obviously money's got to be put aside for this. How, how would you determine what percentage and factor that would be? Yeah, I mean, it's individual by property. Um, I would say, I mean, in that example, I would say three to 400 per month is reasonable. Like I have one student residence, it's about $600 a month. So I think on like a, a non-student residence, it's gonna be about three, about half that. That's what I would probably budget towards the repairs and maintenance roughly, yeah. Absolutely makes sense. I totally love that. So um, yeah, again, now obviously you're okay with not cash flowing. Like I, I get so many people that say, hey, it's got a cash flow, I'm not interested. But uh, again, there's that argument about appreciation as well. I mean, when I, John, to be clarified, when I bought them, they cash flowed. <laughs> so I definitely, it is my uh, go-to. Like that is something that it's a, it's a principle for sure. I definitely want that. But I'm, because the market shifted and we, I need to be patient about it, then I need to kind of say, okay, maybe I'll look at it from a different viewpoint. Maybe the portfolio is making up for those properties as well 
right? Gotcha. And I, and I get maybe some people don't have a, you know, a, a larger portfolio to make up for the difference, but that's the way I've kind of rationalized it. It's like, okay, these aren't performing from a cash flow perspective. They're in great locations. I'm going to wait for the appreciation. Plus, like, again, the market's changed. At the same time, I've got these other properties that I purchased years ago, and they're able to make up for the shortfall. So that's the way I kind of rationalized it. Um, and, I, and I still think, here's the one thing, where is it going to be five years from now? Like today, yes, not great. Maybe not ideal. But in five years, where do you see it? And perhaps that's the perspective that you need to look at. That makes sense, actually. Totally makes sense. I mean, um, I'm one of those cash flow fans, but you're right. Things happen, and not necessarily that you want to dump something just because the cash flow changed because circumstances change and things go up and down all the time. So clearly there's going to be a bounce back at some point. Yeah. And then like your mortgage rates, I mean, again, where are they going to be in two, three years from now? I don't want to make any hard predictions on it, but they're saying, you know, going to be maybe 3% around there. So what does that look like, you know, in that time frame? And there you go. And that's a possibility, right? You never know the future. I mean, the reason I asked that question, because there's a lot of people turn around and say, okay, mortgage being refinanced. And let's be honest, there's a good amount of percentage of uh, investors that are selling their homes because of that result. Now, I don't know if that's a smart move or not the smart move. I mean, it depends what you bought it at and everyone's in a different part of their life. Because I mean, if you're close to retirement, you may not want to hang on to it regardless of the uh, interest rate. So everyone's different, but it's sort of the Trying to, uh, I'm trying to vet out the whole panic that, oh my God, I'm not getting cash flow. Let's sell right away. So, I mean, I'm obviously, you're proving that there's, you got to think long-term, not just short-term, and it's not just right now. Exactly. Uh, it's definitely long-term. I mean, when, so I'll go back to those properties I mentioned, they're cash flow negative, right? There's about two or three of them like that. And I just look at it from, I wasn't planning on selling them this year anyway. Even if they went up in value and the cash flow is perfect, I was not planning on selling them. I was planning on holding on to them and paying them off over time, letting them appreciate their, their long-term holds at the end of the day, right? That's the, that was the intention. And again, am I, you gotta look at yourself. Are you in a position to still hang on to them? That's the other thing too, right? There are people who I know that are not in a position to do that, so they gotta make some hard decisions. But if you can, I would say weather the storm. Because the other thing too to make, make mention that perhaps needs to be considered is would you be able to get that mortgage again in the future? Oh, that's a really good one. Right? So I got the, let's say I got the mortgage on that property two years ago. I qualified for whatever reason, based on the, based on the circumstances that maybe because interest rates were low, maybe my income was there, whatever the case be. Now today, if I sell that and I want to buy a similar property, but, or a property similar in a different state or a different province, whatever, can I get that mortgage again? If you can't, then maybe you should value the fact that you've got borrowing Right. That's that in itself is something important to look at is like, hey, I got a mortgage on this that I wouldn't have today. That's that is so true. I mean, that's a perspective that most people don't even think of. Right. Yeah. Like now, with that being said, I love how you said state or province. So where I'm going to go with go where I'm going here is do you have any investments outside of Ontario? I don't. They're all in Ontario. I've kept it pretty simple. Ah, that's interesting. I mean, was it on intentional or was it just sort of nothing really came about? Intentional, quite honestly. Like I, I know a lot of people going to Florida. I hear some great things, um, <laughs> right? Yourself, I've heard, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I know other investors that have bought multifamilies in the United States have set up shop there. Um, I've just looked at it from like just keeping it simple, and I know things. I, I know the fundamentals in Ontario work. Um, it's about finding the right properties. 
Um, and again, it just depends on your goals too, right? I, I, again, I'm not looking to build like a uh, hundred units. I think if you're aspiring for that, that's a good place to go is the States. I hear, you know, cost per door is really low, but for me, it was just more like I didn't want to get caught up in, how do I put it this way? I won't call it shiny object syndrome, but I didn't want to like spread myself too thin either. Right. Gotcha. That's, that's what I would say. And oftentimes like I'm guilty of it too, where I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm start chasing like different ways to uh, make a buck or two. And then all of a sudden you realize that what you had in front of you was working. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Right. Like, um, I'm going to get into a touchy subject here. Sure. And, uh, the whole Ontario not being so landlord friendly. I know. Geez. Been there. <laughs> so yeah, you have had experiences with tenants where that became a problem, right? Been there. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because there's a lot of people out there that that's the one thing that's holding them back from an investment property because they're scared. What would your advice be? Like, what would be the... Uh, oh, you know what? Why don't, why don't we do story time here for a second? Let's do right? it. Right? So I had a pro I have a, a duplex in Mississauga, legal duplex. We converted it into a secondary suite. Um, and I... This was during the pandemic. I finally got a basement tenant in there and uh, she paid for the first two, three months. And then sure enough, by December, payment stopped. Can't reach her. I honestly don't, didn't hear from her whatsoever. File my forms, right? N4, L1s and all this sort of stuff. So fast forward, turns out, um, you know, she's got some mental health issues, unfortunately, uh, but she's not leaving the property. So it took me till about June to get a, uh, a hearing at the LTB. So again, I start in December, June, I get my hearing. She doesn't show up for it. They, 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 they basically uh, gave me the, um, the judgment saying, yep, um, we favor the, the landlord here, great. So all you have to do is wait for your notice, um, your judgment, sorry, that's what it is, your judgment. I didn't get the judgment till August, a month later. Then that judgment says you have to give her, you have to file with the sheriff for eviction. Actually, no, you give her a grace period of two weeks on top of that notice. Then it was six weeks for the sheriff because in Peel region, they were that backlogged that for, for sheriffs to go evict. So it comes down to October 22nd. Again, not a single dollar paid, no utilities paid. That was her responsibility. Grass was not cut. I had to get someone to do that because that was, even though it was her responsibility. So it took 10 months from December till October for her to leave essentially. And I think that I was out, call it 17 to 18 grand at the end of the day. Gotcha. Right. Not a great experience. No. Right. Probably would scare a lot of people. However, let's look at the property here. It went from 660 all the way to 900 during the time I've owned it. Like three, you're talking about over 300 grand or close to it. So yes, I lost 17, 18 grand, which I'm not happy about, nor should anyone be, but the property is appreciated. And I went through a bit of heck for it, but, but that's what it comes down to is like, okay, look at the bright side. Like what did you gain from it, right? A, a, a fantastic asset, appreciating asset. So she left, um, I brought up a property manager now going forward and she's now finding the, the tenants. I'm pretty good screening them, but I've just decided, you know what, at that point, I'm gonna, this thing cash flows enough, I'm gonna hire someone to do it. And it's been great since. Gotcha. And I think in the law of averages, you're gonna have one one or two bad incidences, I think. And if you keep it from a from that perspective, I think it, it's, I'd still do it today. Like someone, if someone asked me, hey, Tom, would you do it again? I said, hell yeah, I'd do it again. I probably would screen a little better, but I'm just saying like, would I still do real estate investing again? Absolutely, it changed my life. Well, there you go, right? So again, you're right. There's always that one or two, and that's the thing, right? The appreciation overtook the loss from the tenant. I mean, had you not had that property, 
you'd actually be further behind. Absolutely. And that part nobody considers. No, they, they will look at the bad experience, the hassles. Yeah, it's a little stressful. Um, I didn't enjoy it, right, at all going through it. I learned a lot, that's for sure. That's a big thing. You learn a lot from those things. You don't learn a lot from your wins. You learn a lot from your, you know, your, your setbacks. So I would say like, you know, I like sharing that because it just puts things in perspective. Like I'm still, I'm still happy with the result at the end of the day. Right, right, which is exactly the important part. So which I'm going to go to the next part here, right? Like, so going forward, what is your uh, intentions? Like where, where, where do you see yourself in a year or two from now? As far as the investing side or? Correct. Well, I mean, I've been actually, so I have actually a real estate coach as well that, uh, a real estate investing coach, I should say, that I bounce ideas off of and we look at, and you know, I've always, I, in the past, I've always had kind of this ambitious to grow this big portfolio. And then I really look at it in the portfolio I have today, it's fairly modest in size, but I really don't need a heck of a lot more to kind of fulfill my personal goals. Like if I maintain what I have and pay them off, I'm in a really good place. So my focus really nowadays is I do a lot more of, of the flipping, flipping of properties where I buy properties, renovate and sell them. Um, I do that for myself. I do I help clients, but I've, I just always like those kind of short term um, gains to pay off my long-term assets over time. So that's really what I plan been going to be planning for doing for the next two to five years. I may acquire a few additional properties like long-term holds, but I'm more focusing on my short-term stuff. Yeah. So obviously, clearly, there's still a good business in that, even with the current interest rates. There is. You've got to know your stuff. Um, I've I've just always enjoyed it. I mean, you don't have to deal with tenants, which is nice, but at the same time, like. Uh, it's it's for me it's fun right finding properties finding deals negotiating then being able to put together a product and bring it to market kind of what you see on hgtv i guess i don't want to say it's exactly like that but there's a there's an element of um i'd say of a rush when you're doing it that i find exciting yeah exactly i love that for someone getting into the business and they just want to start investing what how would they learn this due diligence what is the right price how would they know now i know it's going to be finding people you want to work with and trust. Yeah. But uh, how do they come up with the numbers, right? Because I mean, I could see a property that's 600,000. I can think it's a great deal and find out it's not. Yeah. So you're talking about specifically flipping, right? Yeah. For flipping. For flipping. So, I mean, I've always broken down like flipping into like what I call the three pillars of a successful flip, right? It's you have property, which is what you're talking about is like, how do you know it's a good deal? Uh, what kind of renovations are involved? Uh, is it marketable? What's the end price? All those things, right? Then the second element is financing. It's like, how are you going to finance this property, right? Like, are you going to use your own personal capital? Are you going to get a bank? Are you going to go private? And then third is who's going to do the work? The contractor, right? Is it going to be you, which I highly don't recommend unless you are one yourself. Um, or are you going to hire someone? Are they reliable? All those things. So when you really kind of break it down, as when you have all those three elements, you've got a good chance that it's going to turn out well, right? Because the moment you don't have a good contractor to do the work, or it gives you shoddy, let's say a shoddy job, that impacts your what you're going to sell for. If your financing is not in place, you may miss out on an opportunity, or it may cost you too much. And then, as you mentioned, the property is like, okay, doing your due diligence, making sure that it makes sense. Your question earlier, I'll go back to it, is, well, how do you know that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How do you know it's a good deal? How do I know it's a good deal? One is it comes down to like good experience. I would say it's like knowing your area. So I focus a lot on like West GTA and being as a realtor, this is great because I can, I'm in the weeds and I see, okay, what is, what is, what is happening? 
How are people behaving towards the property? Is there upside? What are they looking for? So you can spot the deals as you're looking at deals. And I think that goes for any investing. It's like, if you're not looking, then you're never going to find a deal because you don't know what you're looking for in the first place, right? But some of my other tools is like, I'll, I'll look at, okay, well, what is the acquisition price and what do I think I can sell it for, right? So, and there's got to be a certain gap. So let, I'll give you an example. There's like one that's uh, it's a condo. It's in um, Burnham Thorpe there. And um, it was, um, I know I know I can sell for 800. Why? Because I sold the same one for 800. This one, I know I need to at least get 150,000 below that. So we bought it for actually 625, right? $175,000 difference that I can work with. I can renovate, like transaction costs, etc. So those are some of the kind of the tools that I use to kind of gauge quickly. Okay, is this worthwhile or not? And then I can go the next step by getting maybe quotes um, and additional due diligence required. Does that make sense? Though? Absolutely. Like, yeah. Absolutely. I call them gaps. Uh, basically, the difference between what you th what what it's potentially worth ARV after repair value and what uh, you can buy for. But you you got a good point there, right? You know that it's worth eight hundred because it's something sold for that eight hundred. Mm -hmm. So if you, you find a spot that's like and they'll let it go for six twenty five, and you know one sold for eight hundred and they're identical or as close to identical as possible, you know with some work you can get it to the same level. Key ingredient then that's something that everybody can look at. Yeah, and if someone's new to it, I mean. I if you work with someone that's experienced that knows has done it before well that's obviously going to be a, a you know a good tool resource to use because otherwise you know it's, it's it is a it's challenging right it's going to be you're going to be second guessing yourself it's nerve-wracking so having that experience helps right which you brought up my next question you know what are your thoughts on joint venturing i think it's great I personally haven't done joint ventures. I've always kind of done my own thing and I've always, if anything, I've helped clients do their own thing. I've kept it separate. But I mean, joint venturing, if you've got the right synergy, um, I think it's fantastic. What I mean by synergy is one person has to have something that the other one doesn't. Because I've seen joint ventures where it's like, oh, we'll both put 50% of the capital and we'll both do 50% of the work. And we'll both 50 and we'll, we'll both split the profits 50-50. Th that's not really a synergy. A real synergy is like, I'll put the, I have the capital and someone has, let's say the knowledge and, and is willing to do the work. That's a synergy because one is looking for some, someone that has something that the other one doesn't. Right. Right. So, and it's just about setting, setting like good, um, something in writing where you're going to be setting expectations of each other. Cause I've seen them blow up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, not my clients, but just other people that have shared with me their stories of working with individuals and it, it's just again miscommunication um but i think it's a fantastic way and that's you, you know a good way to like someone grow their portfolio you were saying earlier like how do you get like additional properties most a lot of people i know they they do it through joint venturing right they they ran out of money so they partner with someone that has money but doesn't have the experience and they collaborate Work together yeah. Yeah. And that's what I also believe. I believe that you can get bigger and grow, get further in life when you learn to collaborate with people rather than seeing them as competition. Oh, I mean, listen, absolutely. Even if it's just sharing, sharing your knowledge, right? Sharing what you do, right? Not, not keeping it close, close to you. Um, it's a fantastic way for sure to like just grow. 1000% there. Now, which brings up my next point here, which is going to be that, uh, what would you say is a bigger facet of your business, the investment side or the uh, real estate agent side? Yeah, so I run, I have like a sales business, um, I've got the, the flipping business, and then there's also, like I said, the rental properties, right? So there's like three. Um, the 
I'd say the the flipping side is about 30% of it. And then like your traditional sort of helping people move from A to B is about two thirds, about 67, because that is just a massive market. I, I forget what the stats are, but I think 2% of real estate transactions are investment related. I, I could be wrong about it, but the point is that it's a small sliver. And yet there's this massive residential component that you can't ignore. Yeah, I, there's definitely a gap there. So, and that's the thing, like, so you built a team, right? Like you, you came here and you uh, basically started on your own or started with your dad and then you built up this team. Like, what did that process look like? How did, how did that come about? Because, I mean, there's a lot of people that get their license, they th- get their license, they go lease a car, um, they get whatever fancy name that the, that's on the uh, flavor plate that day and then they show up to work with that lease payment. Now they got, I got a lease payment and uh, the first person they call, is somebody they know, like a family member, and they're not looking to buy. Now they're going, oh, this doesn't work that way. <laughs> so, what would be the what was your process like? How did it work for you? A lot of it was trial and error at the beginning, right? I think we all did that, and you learn through the uh, learn through the ropes, and so to speak. Um, so, I, yeah, you mentioned about running a team. Like I, I have a sales team. Um, it's not a large team. I've, I've kept it fairly small, like to keep it. Uh, small quaint and high transaction like we do close to about 130 150 transactions per year um and hence at the end of the day i find like most important thing is the hiring i learned the hard way many times that finding the right people is so important and if you don't find a process or have a process for hiring and evaluating people you're just going to go in your gut um you're leaving things to chance and i've learned that the hard way so one thing that I can say is that you, you, your first hire should actually be like a fantastic admin. Someone that's gonna support you, can do the paperwork, and you can focus on selling. I don't think anyone should be adding salespeople to their team until they have that admin, that key admin person. And they usually say it's about 40 transactions at that point, right? So you can have enough to pay that individual. So that's, that's critical. And then add you know, the salespeople to your team, I would say. Um, so I don't know if I've answered the question, yeah, but. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, basically, so you got to the point. This is what I got out of it. You're basically at the 40 uh, transaction stages where you felt the need to grow, and, but the admin was your key priority. And uh, I guess, you know, because obviously systems are a big piece of the business. And if you don't have a proper system and a way to you know, follow through, it kind of falls apart. Absolutely, and really systems don't have to be complicated. It's just a consistent way of doing something that's repeatable, predictable, and efficient. And that admin person, especially if you're not like good at that, which a lot of salespeople are not, that person should be designing the systems around you so you don't have to think about it too much. Makes sense. Now, the biggest question, when you got into the business, why did you choose Royal Page? Well, truthfully, like I, again, my father, I'm a second generation realtor, so um, I thought it was a good synergy to work with him. So hence, uh, we used to be a different brokerage, it was Kingsbury then, and thought, okay, this is a good fit. So I essentially inherited getting into Royal Page, but I mean, it's just been amazing working with them. I mean, they invest a lot in terms of education. Um, They're always looking at ways to essentially help us grow our business whether that is uh, through, uh, let's call them learning and growth sessions or even just one-on-one. Um, they've been fantastic and I, I, yeah, I can't say enough good things about uh, the programming here. Makes sense. Now, 
what would you say would be your biggest success, whether as a realtor or an investor? And I'm going to follow that with uh, what would you say was the biggest, uh, I don't want to say failure, but learning lesson. Success? Hmm. Trying to really think about that because, it's, I mean, of recent memory, I would say. I mean, I don't know if it's been the biggest success, but um, I think if, if anything, I think a good realtor mix is someone who doesn't give up on a transaction. And I had this one recently in, uh, in March. It was an off-market deal, which I presented to a client. And unfortunately, with this off-market, fantastic opportunity. But someone was residing in this property that um, didn't want to move out. Okay, uh, it wasn't a tenant, kind of a quasi-squatter, a bit of a weird situation. Push comes to shove, this person wanted to move out. And rightfully so, my client, the investor, buyer, even though it was a fantastic opportunity, said, no, I'm not interested. This is just going to be too much, too much hassles for me. Like, it's just too much. And I respected that. So instead of letting the deal go, because I, I knew it was a fantastic opportunity, just got on the phone and started calling every investor I knew. I said, listen, I've got this. This is the situation. You may have to kick this person out yourself, but I can get you $50,000 off if, 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 you, if you are interested in this deal. Sure enough, someone put up their hand and said, I'll do it. I can, and, and said, I'll take the risk, not a problem. And we we're able to close on the property within a week. And that person and the, the investor got a fantastic deal. The seller was ecstatic because the person who was residing in there was giving them a lot of problems. Um, but I guess when you, when you ask that question of recent memory, I was pretty proud of myself that I didn't just say, okay, throw my hands up and say, hey, you know what, uh, we'll just have to find something else. It's not working out. It was like, no, we're, not, we're gonna, we know there's something here, there's an opportunity. And we know we can also help the seller out who's in a bind to, who wants to get rid of this property but is having issues. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So in lieu of time, I'm gonna ask you two more questions. Sure. And then uh, we'll get into what I call the lightning round. So second last question is gonna be, how do you know you've had a successful day? <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a checklist guy. So maybe you've ever noticed, but like I'll, I'm very systematized. So for me, it's like if I can like literally get the items off my list for the day, I feel like a proud individual. So what does that mean? It's like, did I go to the gym today? Because I'm, I'm big into like a morning routine. So my morning routine would be like, okay, I'm gonna go to the, I'm gonna hit the gym. I'm gonna make my calls in the morning, right? Prospecting. I'm gonna be doing my lead follow-up. Um, I'm going to be also um, pre-qualifying my people, right? So as an agent, it's, these are like really important things that we do in the morning and it will influence the rest of your day. So if I can knock those things off, I call that a success. Even though it may sound fairly minor, I think that's like, for me, that's, the, that's so important. I agree. Now, last but not least would be uh, two questions and one is, and the one question is, uh, you know, how do people find you? Where do they find you? And uh, any last, uh, you know, any last things you want to say to the listeners or viewers before we go to lightning round? Yeah, so, um, so I'm, I'm here at the Roll the Page Signature Office here in Mississauga. So, John, you and I work out of the same office, right? So, <laughs> uh, our office number here is 905-568-2121. Um, but also let your viewers and listeners know, like, again, I specialize a lot in the, fl in the flip properties. And if it's someone that's interested in that, uh, we've got a dedicated website that's got a free ebook. So they're more than welcome to check out some before and after videos that are on this website. And again, there's that ebook and, and we can also connect if, if that's something that the person wants to do as well. And I'll just share that URL if that's okay. Absolutely. Okay, so that's uh, fliphomesgta.com. And I'm gonna put that in the uh, show notes for anybody who wants to just click on it and uh, make it easier. Now let's get into what I call the uh, lightning round. 
Sure. Just a quick question, sort of like just a little fun personal stuff about you, such as what is your favorite food and why? Chips. Love the carbs. <laughs> well, I think the, the, the chips are self-explanatory here. <laughs> um, second question, favorite vacation spot and why? Uh, we've got a cottage uh, up north and uh, it's just, I'm, I'm a big fan of boating, so I just love being on the lake. Gotcha. Now, favorite podcast or book the book i i would say and i i matter i bet that a lot of people have actually mentioned this is the rich dad poor dad book um that had a big influence on me it was kind of the gateway into real estate investing and just understanding getting that mindset around you know how do i how do i look at things differently right as supposed to just working for money how does money work for me so that was a pretty influential book yeah it was for me as well um lastly but not least if you had unlimited amount of money, but you only had 48 hours to spend it, what you spend you get to keep, what you don't spend gets taken away, what would you do? As corny as it sounds, I'd probably buy a ticket to space. <laughs> that is an interesting thing. I don't know if I'd make it up there. I'd probably uh, you know, empty my stomach by the time I <laughs> get there, but it's it's an interesting thing. Well, didn't they like offer, I think it was like a million bucks uh, for a ticket to go to space? It was um, Virgin Airlines, I, I can't remember, but that's the first thing that kind of jumped out at me, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. Awesome, I love that. So Tom, I wanna say thank you so much for being on the show. It's been incredible and I uh, found it very valuable. I'm so happy you were here. Yeah, thanks for having me again, this is awesome. Absolute pleasure. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below.